invite you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. We're actually going to be skipping around a number of different places today, um, but that's where we want to be focusing on a little bit, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, several weeks ago, we started ser- on this journey searching um, for some answers to some of life's greatest questions. And uh, as I kind of said uh, last week, and I um, want to remind us that one of the things that I've done when I've looked at this series is um, I've really been trying to approach this as if it, if I were a skeptic or if there were skeptics in the audience. And um, in reality, I think that the questions we've been looking at really um, are some questions that people have been, have been wrestling with for centuries. Uh, you go out into our world and you start talking to people and you see that these questions, these a lot of these looming questions that are around, um, that that uh, that they're they're all over. They're all around us. They're within the. They're not. I think not just in with the people that we meet on an everyday basis, um, that we mix mix uh, mix with here and there, whether it's at the grocery store in our homes or on the sidewalks or outside of our houses, and um, you know, in in school, at work, you know, wherever we want to say, um, there are people who have been wrestling with some of these questions, and and so. Um, but the reality is that we are people who are filled with meaning. We are people who are filled with purpose. And so our minds are plagued with questions like this. Um, things like, where did I come from? What, why am I here? What is my reason for being? What is my purpose? Uh, does, life have to ha- does life have any kind of a meaning at all? What if, or, or how about this one? What is, what's wrong with the world? Or maybe, hopefully uh, not, but maybe you've asked yourself the question, what's wrong with me? Um, Will it ever? Will our world be ever made right? Uh, where am I going? What, what will happen to me when I die? And these are the questions I think that, as we look at it, um, our world all around us are are asking. And um, if you get close to anyone, if you start to have a deeper deeper conversations with people, you'll see that these questions are there. We have a lot of superstitious beliefs in America. You start talking to people and. And this, uh, I, I, um, I maybe mentioned this to a couple of you before, but this opportunity that I've had to be teaching this, um, this class on um, creation versus evolution has spurred a lot of discussions with, with people around, uh, um, around me, my neighbors, my, uh, just, just people from time to time, where I've realized that people have questions about life. They have questions about our purpose. They have questions about, they're not sure what the true meaning of, of life really, what it's, what it's coming to, or what it's, what it's for. And we're, they're just struggling each and every day. They're just kind of going about their day and, and hoping that there's something at the end of the, at the, end of the rainbow. Um, that's the reality of the world we live in. If you really start having a conversation with people, you will realize that that's the real reality we live in. And sometimes we have questions ourselves. And um, I think that how we answer these questions, that will inter- determine ultimately how we approach life. It will determine how we see, how we live our lives. Um, and yet I think that in order to answer those questions, the ones that I just posed for a little bit there, uh, we need to first wrestle with and answer three other questions and the first of which is this, is there a God? Is there a God? And so we've already said this. We've argued for the existence of God. 
here. That's what we've done in three separate messages. We gave some evidence for the, in, in fact, for the existence of God, that that that, that existence is a reasonable, a reasonable belief. That, in other words, that it makes sense logically, it makes sense philosophically, it makes sense scientifically to believe that God, in fact, does exist. It just makes sense. And yet, even though we, we arrive at that conclusion, which we should, that God does, in fact, exist, we're still left with two more foundational questions. And I think that this maybe is more where, where we're at in our society. It's not so much does God exist. I think that I think the majority of if a poll were taken, I've seen some of it, it's been a while, but I've seen some of it. Most people believe that there's a God or at least a higher being. The problem is, what is God like? And, and can I know God? Is there a personal element to that? You know, we well, we need to realize that God is, in fact, here, right? He is not silent. And, and God not, not only wants us, this is what the Bible teaches us, God not only wants us to know that, that He is, but He also wants us to know who He is. And, and while God has spoken to us in a very, I, I would say, clear and yet general way through nature, we walk outside, we see all the things that God has done in His universe, what does the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. What, is the, what does Paul say in the Romans? He says, you look at all these things around us, and if you can't tell that there is God, I mean, he says that all the things that are evident for us, we are without excuse if we don't recognize that, that it, that is God. Um, God has spoken to us in a clear and yet gentle way through, his, through nature, but he has also spoken to us very specifically and very specially through the Bible, His Word. And so we looked at that last week. The Bible is unlike any other book. Uh, I'm not going to over, go over all of that, uh, that whole sermon, but overwhelmingly I think a case can be built for the Bible's, uh, Bible as God's self-revelation to us. When you think about the manuscript evidence, thousands of, of, of manuscripts, overwhelming amount of early manuscripts that, you know, especially from New Testament manuscripts that, when uh, that we see um, when they're compared to other literary works, I mean, it's just overwhelming amount of evidence for that. When you look at the archaeological and historical evidence that take, uh, we talked about last week, how how we look at places that that nobody they, they questioned um, um, some of like the Hittite community and, and, and stuff like that 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 archaeology has discovered. And brought up, and over and over, we've found things. Archaeology and archaeology and science and all those have supported the fact that the Bible was right all along. Many of those places are, and, and the evidence that people mention in the Old Testament, New Testament, have been discovered by them, especially in the last century. And, and when you consider the prophecies that were made and that were fulfilled, and you consider the structure of the Bible, um, you think about the amazing structure and the unity alone demands our attention. You know. I mean, think about it, that the Bible written over a period of 1,500 years, uh, written in three languages, 40 different authors, authors coming from all different kinds of life as fishermen, tax collectors, um, doctors, prophets, shepherds, farmers, you name it. And, and, the, and the books were penned under different circumstances in, different three, in, in different, three different continents, uh, uh, in cultures, Asia, Africa, a Europe. 
We get all of that and we look at how that was put together and over that long period of time and yet we look at the storyline of the Bible and see the unity of it, that that storyline evolves around one central message and that is God's redemptive plan for a sinful and lost humanity. But here's what I want to focus in on today. The central figure of the story, the hero of all history, in all humanity is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 sums it up this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. See, Jesus is not only the centerpiece of the Bible. He is the centerpiece of all of history. I want you to listen to what some modern writers have said about Jesus. This is author and pastor late late author and pastor Tim LaHaye, he once said this. He said, every person who has ever heard of Jesus has developed an opinion about him. He is not only the most famous person in history, but also the most controversial. Apologist Steve Kumar says this. He says, we may ignore him, but we cannot avoid him. We may reject him, but we cannot escape him. His name is written across every page of modern history. Every time that we write a letter, and, and, and date it, of course, we acknowledge his entrance on to our planet. He is indeed the stubborn fact of history. <coughs> Philip uh, Schaff, he's a theologian who lived in the 19th century, he wrote, he had this to say. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed, light, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence, eloquence of school, he spoke words of life such as were never, before spoke, never spoken before nor since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of, an, of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he has set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, debates, works of art, learned, learned volumes, and sweet songs of praise than the whole army of great men of, of ancient and modern times. Born in a manger and crucified as a malefactor or an outlaw, he now controls the destinies of the civilized world, and rules a spiritual empire which embraces one-third of the inhabitants of the globe. <laughs> well, the great question, I think, today is, who exactly is this Jesus? Why should I believe in him? And that's not just the question for our day. It, is, it was also the question of Jesus' day. When Jesus was preparing his disciples... Before he went to the cross, he asked them a question that people, I believe, are still asking today. But I want you to listen to this, and you'll be reminded of once you see it. But this, listen to this exchange from Matthew's gospel between Jesus and his disciples. Matthew chapter 16. 
when God came to the region of, or when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Since the days of Jesus, there have been a lot of opinions floating around as to the identity of Jesus. Now, some suggestions were not necessarily bad descriptions. You know, they were just wrong. <laughs> and I would say that it really doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't help to get close to the truth and miss the truth, right? To have part of the truth is to not have the whole truth, which means all you have is a lie. When it comes to the Christian faith, questions like who is Jesus Christ, or was he really God's son, or was he really God in the flesh, those questions, I think, are the most fundamental questions that we can ask. Jesus, see, is the linchpin of our faith. I mean, everything hinges upon him. You cannot separate Christ from Christianity. Because without Christ, there is no Christianity. Um, we, can we, cannot, or we can have religion without Christ, but it's not New Testament Christianity. Jesus is the very heart of our faith. Now, the essence of our faith is not the message of Christ, but the person of Christ. The essence of our faith is not even the cross of Christ. The essence of our faith is Christ himself. Now hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Jesus' message wasn't important. It was. Our, our salvation depends upon believing that Jesus was who he said, and said he was. And I'm not saying that the cross of Christ wasn't important because without the cross there is no remedy for sin. What I am saying is that without Jesus Christ, we have nothing, absolutely nothing, because it's all about Him. Jesus is more than just the founder of the Christian faith and one who left us His teachings and pointed the way to God and to eternal life. Let me just put it this way. Christianity is the only religion in the world that rests upon the person of its founder. You realize that? For example, if you take Buddha out of Buddhism or Muhammad out of Islam, nothing essential is really lost. Nothing is lost. See, most of the world's religious founders stress the importance of their teachings. But Christ focused on himself. And so what it is, uh, so what is it that set Christ apart from those other religious leaders and founders? Well, for starters, Jesus claimed to be God. Not, not, one rec, not, not one recognized religious leader ever claimed to be God. Moses didn't. The apostle Paul didn't. In fact, if you think about it, when, when and Paul was horrified in the book of Acts when, when the people in Lystra bowed down before him in worship. So Paul didn't claim to be God. Confucius didn't. 
Buddha didn't. Muhammad didn't. Joseph Smith didn't. No founder of any major religion ever claimed to be God. And not only that, but no religion has ever claimed for its founder what Christianity has claimed for Jesus Christ. Jesus claimed that he was, we just sang it in the song, he was the only way to God. He claimed to be God. So what does that mean? Well, I think that that means that if Jesus is not who he said he is, then we have no reason to trust what he said or believe in what he did. I think that that means that if Jesus Christ is not God's son, then the cross becomes irrelevant and the door to eternal life has not been opened and the way to God forever remains blocked. I think that that means that if, if Jesus were nothing more than just a mere man, a, a finite man, even if he were a perfect man, his death would not have, a, have been sufficient to pay an infinite sin, an infinite sin debt to an infinitely holy God for all people and for all time. Now, while there are a few today who would doubt the history of a man by the name of Jesus, most do not. There are many, though, who are not willing to proclaim him as Lord and to worship him as God. Many view him as a legend or as a myth, but not Lord. Few scholars today are foolish enough to deny the existence of a man called Jesus and, and ignore, him, ignore his impact on history. Those things are very carefully and wonderfully documented, not just in the Bible, but outside of extra, extra biblical documents. Those things are documented that this man existed and that he had a, had a huge impact on, on history. Even a skeptic such as H.G. Wells, he admitted this. He said, I am a historian. He said, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. H.G. Wells, atheist. So they don't deny Jesus' existence. They don't deny his impact. What they do argue is that the events that, were surround, that surrounded his life and the person that he became... They, they argue that that was nothing more than an image that was created by, by his followers after his death. Do you hear that? In other words, they believe that there was a Jesus in history, but they don't believe he is the Jesus of faith. For them, there is a huge difference between the Jesus of Christianity and the Jesus of history. The, the fact that he was God, or even claimed to be, in their minds is nothing more than a misrepresentation by his followers of who he really was. The fact that he was a miracle worker, exaggerations by his followers. The fact that he was raised from the dead, it was just a lie of mythic proportions in an attempt to deify this man after he had died. They say he was not Lord, but he was a legend. Well, I think that brings up a rather interesting question, don't you? Because, I mean, would, would the disciples, knowing that they had created this legend and this myth surrounding their teacher, would they be willing to die for what they knew to be a lie? I mean, someone might be willing to die for the truth or what they sincerely believe as a truth to be the truth, but would they be willing to die 
for what they knew to be a lie. And then there's this. The only way to explain the change in the disciples, I mean, it's just amazing. You look at, at, at the disciples during the crucifixion and, and, the, and the things that, the ways that they walked around like with their heads down and, and, and just, you know, in, in, in went, went away and, and hid and, and, and locked themselves up behind closed doors and all that. The only way to explain the change in their in their lives from these scattered band of men to these emboldened preachers of the gospel who are willingly martyred for the sake of the gospel? The only way to explain that change is the resurrected Jesus Christ. So some see Jesus as a myth, and yet others see him only as a good moral example, a man and nothing more. Some have, have said that Jesus was the most, the most influential teacher in all of human history and a man who was worth emulating, and yet they argue that he was not and never claimed to be the Son of God. Such a person, I think, was Mahatma Gandhi. Well, he said a lot of different things. He, one thing that he said was that he would consider becoming a Christian if it were not for Christians. That was quite the... Um, so I don't know what he was exactly saying there other than he was saying that some, I, I think what he was saying was that he's not seeing, um, what's that whole hypocritical argument? I guess we don't follow what we you know, um, preach, I guess. But he also said this of Jesus. He said, it was more than I could believe that Jesus was the only incarnate son of God and that only he who believed in him would have everlasting life. He said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice, a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. See, some people are willing to accept Christ as a great teacher, as a good man, and even a miracle worker but they are unwilling to accept that he is God or that he claimed to be. Well, let's look at some of Jesus' claims. Jesus claimed to have a unique, uh, have a unique relationship with the Father. He claimed to be God in the flesh. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I, am, I and the Father are one. John chapter 8, verse 9, 19, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and he he, he said to them, he says, you don't know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Or John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am, which was an Old Testament designation for God. If you remember when Moses was before God, he says, who should I say sent me? God said, tell them that I am sent you. John chapter 14, verse 9, he said, he who has seen me, has seen the Father. There are often times that he he had op, he had opportunities to to uh, to say you know what when when people caught, uh, well when people try rose up to 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 remark against him and say hey he's that's blasphemy that's all that kind of stuff he had every opportunity to say you know what that's not what I meant but he didn't. Another thing is that he claims some things, some prerogatives 
um, that, that belong to God and to God alone. I think about the story in Mark chapter 2. Mark tells about this paralytic and Jesus is teaching in this house and, and there was no way to get him. The crowds were so big and, and so the people knew that they wouldn't be able to get up to Jesus and so they carried this guy on a mat and they brought him up to the top of this, um, onto the top of this hill or, or top of this, this building, this house. They cut a hole in the roof and they lowered this guy on a mat down right before Jesus. Now that's, that's some pretty incredible stuff. You got to want this guy, guy healed pretty badly. You remember what Jesus said to the man? The first things that came out of his worth, uh, out of his mouth, he said, "Son, your sins are forgiven." <laughs> I just love that story. Why didn't he say, "Hey, rise up and walk"? That's not what he saw the greatest need of that man. He said, "Your sins are forgiven." If you remember the, the, the religious leaders that are around him, what are, what's the thing that they said right away? They accused him right away of blasphemy. They said, "Who, who can forgive sin?" except God himself, God alone. And he, again, once again, had every right, to, uh, had every opportunity to set the record straight, but he didn't because he is, in fact, God. If Jesus was not a lunatic, then he forgave sins against God because he was God. In Matthew 28, 18, he claimed to have absolute power and authority. In John chapter 14, he claimed to be the object of religious faith. In John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas worshipped him as God, and Jesus did not refuse it, but he accepted it. Or, or consider the fact that Jesus taught differently than anyone else. You, I, I love the Beatitudes because he will see it over and over and over and over again. He says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. What's he doing? He's going back and he's saying, what, you've heard that it was said in the Old Testament scriptures. He comes to the intent of that. He didn't change that. He just comes to the intent of what God really meant. But I say to you, you've heard that it said, you know, hate your, your enemies and he says, or, or but he says, I, he says you, I, do, do good to your enemies, love your enemies. What, you've heard it was said that, that you know, um, the idea that, that um, um, he says hating your brother is, he says do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother. Now who, who talks like that? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, See, when we examine Jesus' claims, I think it becomes clear that, that he doesn't leave us with any other options as to his identity, to who he is. Uh, C.S. Lewis, and, and this, is, this is a wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis. He said this, he said, I am, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Realize what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to say that. That's what everybody says. Everybody is saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great, as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He says, that's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a human and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who thinks he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Well, if he isn't a liar or a lunatic, who is he? I mean, just, just because Jesus claimed to be God doesn't make it so. I mean, after all, what would you think if someone that you knew claimed to be God? Well, you'd probably think he belonged in the loony bin. Maybe you've seen some of that or have done that. One man tells a story about visiting a mental institution. I don't know if you, you heard this. Some of this is, uh, I had this on file, and it's probably some of it's not maybe very politically correct. I guess you call it a mentally challenged institution. I don't know. What do they call them now? I just thought about that. This is probably not politically correct. Sorry, guys. It's not going to be today. But anyway, he, he, he went to this institution. He was dealing with a man who insisted that he was Jesus Christ. Not metaphorically, not in the spirit, but in the flesh. And so one day he went to meet this man and he asked him, are you Jesus? And Yes, my son, the man said. Well, the counselor said to the man, he says, well, wait here, I'll be back in a minute. The guy's kind of, where is he going? Okay. So he left. Three or four minutes later, the counselor came back, and he's holding a tape measure. And he measured the guy's arm string. He had him stretching out. And he measured him from head to toe and checked it all out. And, 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 uh, and then he left again. And the man claiming to be Christ was just a little confused at that point. And he, but a little while later, the counselor returned and he brought with him a hammer and some large spikes and a long set of boards, and he began to, to, to pound uh, uh, the wood into the shape of, uh, well, kind of a plus sign kind of thing, you know, a cross. The man said to him, so what, what are you doing? And as, as the counselor put the last nail on the cross, he asked the man again, he says, are you Jesus? And again the man said, yes, yes, I'm Jesus. And then the counselor looked him straight in the eyes and he said, then you know why I'm here. And suddenly the delusion lifted and the man realized who he was. <laughs> well, Jesus didn't just claim to be God. He was God. And Jesus' life and his, the reliability of the scriptures give us proof that supports Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Let me just give you a little proof. Some of these we've already mentioned last week. Uh, this first one we did, biblical prophecy. We talk about that, the fact that Jesus, uh, um, uh, there were over 300 Old Testament prophecies and predictions about, that, that found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament foretold events such as, as his birth and his place of birth, his name, how he died, his betrayal, and and who he would die with, and, and, and just to name a few. There was just a number, over 300 of them. And if you were with us last week, we said that the odds of one person completing or fulfilling just eight of those prophecies would be one chance in 100 million billion. That's one with 17 zeros. One to the tenth, of, one times 10 to the 17th power. Um, how could he have controlled his genealogy? How could he have controlled his place of birth and his name and his timing of his birth? How could he control the fact that the Sanhedrin offered to him 
uh, offered to Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray him. How could he have controlled his method of execution? Romans, the Romans weren't even around. The soldiers gambling for, how, how about the soldiers gambling for his clothes? That would have been beyond his control. Jesus' life perfectly fit the fingerprint of Old Testament prophecy. That's number one. Number two, his life backed up his claims to be God's son. The, the, the scriptures tell us that he was without sin. Even his enemies couldn't come up with a charge against him. In fact, at his, at his trial, they had to hire false witnesses to testify against him. The Hebrew writer says that, all, that in all things he was tempted as, as we are, and yet he was without sin. Or 1 Peter 2.22 says that he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And then there's his miracles. That's, that's number three. His miracles reveal his power over sickness, his power over nature, his power over life, and even death. You know, the greatest of his miracles, I think, is you know, bringing Lazarus back to, to, to the life or, or the, the little girl back to life after they had died. But I think the greatest one is his own resurrection. But then finally, the events that surrounded his death. I mean, they, they point to his unique person. The gospel writer Matthew, I think, describes it better than I can. But listen to this, and it should be up on the screen. Listen to this. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Look at what happens surrounding his death. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that the barrier between God and man had been, had been uh, uh, removed. And that's, why he, that's what he came to do, right? That's been accomplished. But then it goes on to say the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who, served, who, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, well, they were terrified, wouldn't you be? And they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. I would argue with that description. I would say, surely he is the Son of God. The following has been said about Jesus. He came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of, wo of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became the son of man that we might become children of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and once, only once crossed the boundary of the land, and that was in childhood. He had no wealth or influence and neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled the king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors of the law. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the waves and hushed the sea of, to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book, yet all the libraries of the country could not hold all the books about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all songwriters put together. He never founded a college 
and yet all the schools together cannot boast as many students as he has. He, has, he never practiced medicine, and yet he healed more broken hearts than the doctors have healed broken bodies. He is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords and the healer of all diseases. Great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. And if he is not a legend, lunatic, or a liar, then he is Lord. And if he is Lord, I submit that he has the right to direct each and every one of our lives if we let him. Father, you are amazing. We just lift up Jesus today. We recognize who he is. And God, I just think that we need to be awestruck by what you've done. That it shouldn't become old hat. That every day that we ought to just be looking into these things and getting even more and more excited as the days go by. Because you are amazing. Your plan was perfect. And it brought about the perfect anecdote for my sin and for all of our sin. And thank you for revealing to us Jesus. And I pray, God, that in our lives, as we leave this place even now, that we would go into our lives, into, into this world, and be visual evidence of who Jesus is by the way that we live, by the way that we talk, by the way that we love, by the way that we care, by the way that we forgive, by the way that we act, by who we are and by the, by the things that we hold dear and the things that we cling to. God, we want to cling to Jesus. We want others to see him through us. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus this week, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond. To